This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER8. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special on Lee Daniels' The Butler. And joining me in Slate's New York studio is Aisha Harris. Hi, Aisha. Hi, Dana. You are a, what do we call you, a contributor to Slate's Browbeat blog, a writer for Browbeat, our culture blog. Correct. And uh, we wanted to spoil this together in part because you did some research and some, you did some writing on this film as well and on, on its veracity. And maybe you can start off with sort of summarizing the butler and the true life story it's based on. But first of all, I always like to start off with just a basic reaction. Uh, we didn't see this together, so I'm not sure what you felt about it overall. Would you say good movie, bad movie, send people to it? Um... I I think people will enjoy it, and um, I, I'd say it's a it's a mixed bag. That was that was my initial yeah, reaction. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But still, I, w- I think I would, in general, send people to this movie if they're interested in it in the first place. I would not try to bar bar the door from this movie. And based on how I felt about Lee Daniels' previous film, Precious, mm. or actually his second-to-last movie, Precious, I thought that I was going to have a more negative reaction to The Butler. S- same. I went in with very low expectations and was pleasantly surprised. Well, so should we get into uh, the story a little bit? And since you have done a little bit of uh, research on Eugene Allen, the man that this movie is very loosely based on, maybe you can set, set that up for a bit. Right. Um, so in 2008, uh, right around the time of the election of Barack Obama, um, the Washington Post journalist uh, Will Haygood um, sought out a, um, a service wor- worker, uh, someone in the in the White House. He was looking for someone, a black person, who would have been around uh, in the White House during like the 50s, 60s, um, someone who was around during segregation and very, uh, very rough racial times. And um, someone pointed at him in the direction of Eugene Allen, um, who happened to still be alive at the time. And um, he sought him out and was able to get an interview with him and his wife, Helene. And uh, from that came a Washington Post article. Uh, It was called A Butler Well Served by This Election, where he talked a little bit about uh, Eugene Allen's life. He served under eight different presidents from Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan and uh, left the White House in 1986. And he basically was there for all of the big social changes that occurred and and was able to see sometimes firsthand uh, these presidents discussing really important issues. Uh, And that article got a lot of traction. Um, uh, Eugene Allen actually was able to vote for Barack Obama and was very happy that he was able to do so. And he passed away in 2010. Uh, He also was invited to, as a VIP um, uh, guest to the inauguration, was able to see uh, Barack Obama get uh, inaugurated. Um, So that's basically the whole story of Eugene Allen in a nutshell. And then uh, there's much more that uh, is probably left out of the is left out of the movie as we know right the movie is is heavily embellished and makes no pretenses about that and changes eugene allen's name completely to cecil Gaines, the main character the butler played by forrest whitaker and uh, you know to me that there wasn't any problem that there had been so much you know shifting around of of the actual history Um, but some of the embellishments seem like they served less of a a less successful dramatic purpose than they could have put it that way um the main i guess not even embellishment but just an outright 
you know, interpolation into the story is that he gives Cecil Gaines, the Forrest Whitaker character, this son who's a who's a black revolutionary, increasingly radical as the 60s go on. Uh, his son, Lewis, is played by David Oyelowo. I hope I'm saying his name right. Yeah. And uh, and we see him mature from, you know, at first just a, a rebellious kid who's, who's sort of chagrined at what he perceives as his father's Uncle Tom-like position in his job. But then he starts to follow Martin Luther King. He rides the Freedom Bus. He gets put in jail with Martin Luther King and and winds up being a Black Panther along with his Afro-wearing girlfriend. And I mean, that, that part of the movie to me was, I, although I love David Oyelowo's performance, and He's I actually great. thought he and Forrest Whitaker had a, a great father-son connection, just the way that he was sort of forced to wear these, you know, increasingly cliched disguises of the 60s and 70s Black radical, just it really seemed like it did a disservice to uh, to that story. Yeah, I I agree. I it, it, I think the costume was a big part of it. It, it just felt in, in the entire movie, and, and I feel like any time I'm watching a movie from or a movie that's supposed to depict the 50s and 60s or just a period piece, it just feel it just felt very too pretty and too pristine and too like what we're used to seeing in these kind of period piece movies. Like it almost felt sometimes not like hairspray. I don't want to go that far afield, but like it just felt very sterile in in some ways especially the black panther thing the 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 outfits like i know that that's kind of the the stereotype of what black panthers panthers wore and granted there were black panthers who wore those outfits but i don't think that it added at all. I think it more so took away. It just seemed more cartoonish than anything else. Right. It came like right off of an Eldridge Cleaver book cover or something, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But in general, I would say it was when history tried to interpose itself in this narrative that the movie was at its both at its kind of most ambitious, which I I respect that, you know, I mean, Lee Daniels is really taking on essentially the entire latter half of the 20th century. Right. And the whole history of, of, of race relations, both through the son's story and through what his father observes in the White House. But especially when the president's came in. That, to me, was one of the weakest parts of the movie. And just this morning, I was reading a sort of defense of of how flimsy the presidents appear in this movie. I mean, just briefly, we should say that the presidents are played in what really amounts to cameos, very, very short scenes by these very unexpected actors in every single role. I mean, just really, really bizarre choices. So the very first president you see Forrest Whitaker's character interacting with is played by Robin Williams. He's playing Dwight Eisenhower. And, uh, And you're just never able to recover from the kind of absurdity of the stunt casting. Anyway, this this critic was arguing that that was deliberate on Lee Daniels' part and that he was trying to kind of expose the fiction of the presidency by casting these these actors who didn't seem to belong. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I buy that argument because the writing itself, the the, the screenplay is by Danny Strong who wrote um, Game Change, that, that Sarah Palin movie for HBO. Mm. The writing itself just doesn't seem sort of politically intelligent enough to be exposing the fiction of anything. Right. There, There's that one scene with Nixon played by... John Cusack? John C- who looks nothing like if Nixon. If nothing else, he's okay. just like 20 years too young yeah, or looks he, 20 years too young. Yeah, and, and where he, he goes into the kitchen where um, Cecil Gaines, Forrest Whitaker, and then um, the two other um, servicemen who are played great, like, I loved them. Um, Cuba Gooding Jr., Cuba Gooding right? Jr., and Lenny Kravitz um, as uh, kind of the, the butler's uh, kind of closest friends. Right, kind of his trash-talking buddies. Yeah, yeah, and, and Nixon comes into the kitchen, and he, like, I can't remember what he asked. He asks them, like, what do black people want? Or, like, what are you guys hoping that I can do? And, he like, he, like, throws a pin at them, like, because this is before he was uh, going to be... Right, he's the vice president. Yeah, he's the vice right. president. And he's, like, he throws a pin at them with his face and his name on it, and 
they're like, all right, y'all make sure you vote for me now. And it's just it just felt like I, I get that the point was them trying to be him trying to be subversive with that piece because you see the reactions and they're like at first it's like oh god this guy's in here like what is he doing like we have to he's he's in charge like we have to kowtow to him and then like it turns into their their looks on their faces it's like what is each other like just the looks on their faces are like disdain and i i get that that was supposed to be subversive but it also felt just so like minuscule and not not as important as I think Daniels thought that moment would be. And you see that throughout. Like, I don't think any of the presidents really have more than five five minutes of screen time each. Um, and it, Carter and Ford get none whatsoever, right? Yeah, There's yeah. not even an actor playing them. I think they just appear in a montage. Right, yeah. Um, it, it was very, to me, it was very distracting. On the plus side, I did like the fact that this was being told from the point of view of the service workers and not we I think it was good that we didn't have uh, in a way that we didn't have too much time spent with the presidents because we don't I, I don't care about them I don't care about that story and and unlike something like the help or or many other movies that have tried to depict the civil rights movement this never becomes about any white character it's always about Cecil Gaines it's always about his son uh, his revolutionary son and that I think is something to applaud because we rarely get that in Hollywood in, in a mainstream Hollywood film do you get like the the black character's point of view the entire time right I mean and that's why I think the most successful part of the movie was the domestic side it's really two movies divided into one it's sort of a domestic tragicomedy right about everything that happens in the Gaines family both the estrangement of Lewis from his father because of his radical politics also Lewis's wife played by Oprah Winfrey sort of cheating on him with the neighbor. It's not clear exactly how far they take things, but the, the neighbor played by Terrence Howard sort of seems to be hanging around waiting for some action with her. Well, I think I think they do. I think he says something along the lines like they've been, they've, either had sex or yeah you're right the idea is that she's wrapping up the affair at the moment we learn about it yeah i mean you see it coming from a mile away it's like you i don't know they they kind of build up to that but yeah i mean she gets one of the most on paper one of the most complex characters in the movie oprah does right she plays someone who has a drinking problem cheats on her husband but is nonetheless a loving parent and a devoted spouse and she really does kind of change throughout the course of the movie i'm not quite sure how I felt about Oprah's performance. She was lots of fun to watch. She has tons of energy on screen, and it's just sort of funny to see Oprah, you know, playing a dramatic role. Yeah. But I, I never forgot she was Oprah for a second. That's a thing. For the most part, pretty much everyone on screen, except for Forrest Whitaker and David Oye, I always pronounce his name. Let's just say it, Oyelowo. Oyelowo. Um, granted, David Oyelowo is... Um, He's not as famous as these other actors. I've seen him in many things, and I feel like because I know pretty much nothing about his personal life that, like, it's always easy for me to see him as that character. Um, But yeah, Oprah, I just felt like was always Oprah. But Oprah being great, like, I I thought she was great in it. It's just, it was hard to detach from that. And yeah, that seems like it's sort of Lee Daniels' thing, is he enjoys stunt casting, and I'm not sure whether he just likes the rise out of the audience that it gets. Well, he got mer- a lot of laughs from the presidents. I mean, almost every time a new president showed up, people <laughs> just snickered, because it was just funny to see that combination of that actor with this, you know, supposed statesman. Well, the, there's Mariah Carey at the very beginning, stripped down, completely looking like no, looking like her, actually her character in um, Precious, which she was also in um, briefly. Um, she played, I think, the social worker. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it was basically her doing 
kind of the same de-glamorized role. But for this, it's only like a brief second. But even that was kind of like a, whoa, that's Mariah Carey. What is she doing here in this cotton plantation? Yeah, it's a strange combination. I really am not even quite sure what Daniel's intention is when he does this stunt casting stuff. You know, sometimes, as with Monique in Precious, you know, you don't think of her as an actress and it works really well. And right. she, you completely forgot she was Monique and she was fantastic. Um, but then then other times you're sta- you stay in this zone where you're sort of flipping. It's as if you were flipping through People magazine, seeing celebrity after celebrity, but grafted onto this story that's supposed to have all this historical gravitas. Yeah. But let's stop just for a moment, Aisha, for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or any kind of film project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. And they source their video clips from around the world, adding 10,000 new clips each week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Just sign up, start using Shutterstock to see what your next project could be like, and save any selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER8, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. Again, that's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off any new account, use the offer code SPOILER8. The Spoiler Special thanks Shutterstock for their support. All right, so we talked a little bit about how the history of the 20th century gets wedged into the Forrest Whitaker story, right, via these not very convincing presidential cameos. What about in Lewis's story? Do you want to talk about the, um, the, the, the way that he moves from, you know, teen rebel to sociology professor or whatever he is by the end of the movie? <laughs> yeah, um, so Lewis basically, uh, as we mentioned before, he's a completely fictionalized character. In real life, Eugene Allen only had one son named Charles. And, and in the movie, he actually has two sons, and Charles is the younger one. Um, and Lewis doesn't exist. So Lewis's character um, basically starts off as the kind of just teenager who doesn't really, he resents his father for what he does, and he he wants more for himself um, than what his father is, and is very ashamed of him. And eventually, he kind of turns into, and people have mentioned this in the reviews, but he kind of turns into, like, this this Forrest, Forrest Gump character who happens to be at all of these, like, very significant moments in the civil rights um, movement. You, there's a great, actually, this is probably my favorite kind of montage sequence in the entire film, where he's in college, and his um, he's going to plan and protest and do a sit-in at a, at a lunch counter. And um, it's kind of interspersed. There's this great, I can't remember what song was playing, but there's great music. And um, he's learning how to, um, there's someone at the college teaching. It's a period song, right? It's like a 60s yeah, it's some, souls, like something, yes, lockdown song? Something that you would ex- you would expect in like right? a 1960s movie. And um, you have one character who's, it's intercut where he's teaching these people how to, to how they're going to to be treated once they go to these go and sit in and that's cut against them actually going and sit, sitting in and being like bombarded and beaten and, and, and harassed and then doesn't that am I imagining another juxtaposition then doesn't the White House state dinner With, start to get cut right in? exactly so you see them walking into like all of the, the young students walking into this this uh, diner and intercut with that uh, parallel is um, is the butlers and all of them in the, in the White House walking through the doors and it's very it's very very nicely done I 
thought that was a great sequence. See, I thought, I mean, while I agree that it was rhythmically really well done, yeah. and this is, the whole movie was sort of like this, while I agree that it was sort of fun to watch, I just felt like the idea was a little bit face-palmingly obvious. I mean, there were a lot of moments yeah. in this movie where I would start off just sort of like, oh no, Lee Daniels, are you really going to go there? That That is not the most extreme example. That, yeah. was, that was really artfully done. But, you know, just moments where the idea of intercutting, you know, two contrasting events together. I mean, it's sort of from The Godfather, right? Like yeah. the christening and the, and the murders happening at the end or something. It just seemed like a very obvious idea. But I also kind of respect that Lee Daniels just kind of went with that. You know, there are a lot of moments, this is a very populist kind of movie. It's not trying to be original. It's not trying to be sophisticated. Not at all. It's trying to kind of move hearts and minds. And I think it does that really well. Well, in the in the book that accompanies the movie, Will Haygood uh, re, um, released a book that goes with the movie now. And it kind of expands on the original article that he has. and also talks about the making of the movie from his article. And in the foreword, um, Lee Daniels writes, and he's like, he essentially, he he says, my ambitions were I wanted to make something on the lines of Gone with the Wind. Now, my initial reaction was, why do you want to make a movie like Gone with the Wind? Um, but I obviously, I think from the politics of the movie, he means less obviously racist and 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 offensive and more just on an epic grand scale of like trying to capture all of these different narratives and all of these different time periods and and that's i mean i wouldn't i I wouldn't compare it to gone with the wind um in terms of like it coming to become called a classic by any means but it definitely has those ambitions and and you see that in lewis's character and the way in which he He's at the lunch counters, and then he's in the same jail as um, Martin Luther King. And then he's uh, he's uh, from what it looked like, he spent the last few hours of Martin <laughs> right. Luther King's yeah. life with him. Right, he just happened to be in the Nashville Hotel <laughs> the night before Martin Luther King was to right, be shot. I was surprised that in the scene where you see Martin Luther King on the balcony, that Lewis's head wasn't kind of popping up <laughs> in the background. It was so weird. Like that part was weird because then I think it, it it does a kind of a dissolve where it goes from you see Martin Luther King's uh, in body. Image on the balcony, and then it. I think it dissolves into maybe the butler. It's weird. Like it goes between those two images, um, and and Martin Luther King has has a line about service workers, and and tells Lewis like service workers are like the backbone of, of, of our country, and they are like subversive in their own way because they're teaching white people that we can be dignified and and good people as well. Um, and, I mean, that's essentially true to what Martin Luther King really thought uh, about service workers. I, I found a quote um, where he was basically saying, like, no service is insignificant and that, like, um, if, if you're called to do, I'm paraphrasing here, but if you're called to do, if you're called to sweep, you should sweep and that kind of thing. And he, he really felt that that there is no shame in being a, in a service worker. And then you juxtapose that with, with Lewis. Lewis's character kind of has a weird, because he, the part where he goes into being a Black Panther, where it switches from him being kind of like on MLK's side to more of like... The, Malcolm X. Malcolm right? X. Um, once he switches into that mode, he, he doesn't go quite as far, I think, as Martin uh, Malcolm X or other Black Panthers did, because he has that scene where they're talking about, well, if they kill one of ours, we kill two of them. And then he kind of like pulls back a little bit. Well, this is like, why he's given the girlfriend, I think, right? He has this yeah. girlfriend who's always just a step more radical than he is, right? So when he's into Malcolm, I mean, into Martin, she starts to get into Malcolm, and there's a moment that, yeah, they basically decide. She says, I would be willing to kill for our cause, and he says, I wouldn't. Yeah, and that's, had, that's the end of, of them, I guess, right? Yeah, he has that line where I was like, oh, and he's like, did you ever love me? And I was like, oh, 
God, what it like? What does that mean? Because he's like shocked by the fact that she wants to kill, and and is totally fine with that. And in to him, it just like. I don't know. It just seemed very kind of melodramatic in a way that didn't sit well. Well, it's just, it was just a moment, which happens a lot to poor David Oyelowo's character, which makes it even more amazing that he still pulls out a good performance. But he kind of gets saddled with a lot of, you know, representing of ideas. You know, he is the guy who has to represent XYZ idea to his father. And he has a pretty thankless part compared to Forrest Whitaker, I think. Because, you know, as you say, he appears in ridiculous costumes all the time and, you know, kind of has to be constantly embodying ideology rather than speaking dialogue. Yeah. But I think we should really wrap on maybe talking about Forrest Whitaker because he really is the reason to see this movie for all of its clunkiness and, you know, many moments that we haven't mentioned that are, I think, sort of unintentionally funny in their clunkiness. The montages really often, to me, resemble PBS documentary montages. It's just, as you were saying about the clothes, it's exactly the beret you would expect on the Black Panther. Well, it's exactly the shot of, you know, street protests that you would expect, right? Yeah. So those are done very predictably. But yet, there's just a gravitas and a beauty to this movie because of what Forrest Whitaker brings to that main character. I just think he's sensational. I agree. Um, I, I just feel like he was he was the kind of nut of this entire... He was the heart of this entire movie. and And I forgot he was Forrest Whitaker. And I think that's great because in a movie where there are so many famous faces, and especially by the end when he's aged and 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 he's kind of hunched over and I just felt like he brought so much to the character. Kind of I hate I hate to use the word, but he he did have like a very quiet dignity to him and and it just emanated, and he was the reason why, like, this movie didn't sag to me. Well, he's the only thing that's not over the top, in a way, when you think about it. I mean, the presentation and framing of everything is almost all over the top. You know, I mean, the the the, the music is over the top. A lot of the performances are over the top. But Forrest Whitaker really underplays. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I found kind of frustrating in regards to his character, and this isn't on him at all, it's just the voiceover narration to me a lot of times felt a little too, like, I'm telling you what I'm doing. Because, like, if I was able to tune out that, I think it was all there, all on Forrest. You could see all of it, especially towards the end where he kind of has that epiphany when he's invited to the state dinner by right. by Nancy Reagan. And he sits down and he kind of, it's telling you all of this through voiceover, but he sits down and he realizes, like, He's being served by the people that he usually serves along with. And he feels very uncomfortable. And he kind of has this moment where he's like, I see them performing. Like, I see what they The they two wear faces, the mask. he says, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he, the two faces. And he realizes that he's been doing that all these years. And I think that moment was... It was strong. Like, I, I, I think maybe he... I think maybe Daniel slash Strong, who wrote the script, maybe had to do that just because a lot of audiences, in particular white audiences, may not get that or may not be able to perceive that. But that's really not giving enough credit to the audience <clears throat> and to Forrest Whitaker. I mean, you basically right. just copped like the last two sentences of my review. I mean, that is, that's, a, that's precisely where we don't need the voiceover. We don't need any exactly. nails and hammers hammering it into our head. It's really enough just to see his uncomfortable face, especially when you look across the table and see Oprah as his wife, who's just pleased as punch to be at the state dinner and having a wonderful time, right? right? But doesn't, doesn't sort of understand the complexities of what goes on behind the scenes at the White House the way he does. And, uh, and and it's really just enough to see him shifting uncomfortably in his chair to sort of feel like, oh, well, this is really a, a guy who doesn't belong anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, I, I just, I, I thought that that moment would have been perfect had there not been voiceover narration. Because it's it's all there. It's all in Forrest's performance. And you're right. Like, it doesn't give enough credit to the audience. And it doesn't give enough credit to Forrest's performance, I think. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's... 
that I think, once again, if you can stand that broadness, if you can sort of stomach, like, this is broader than it needs to be, it's more obvious than it needs to be, but, you know, I still want to see, I, I want to get to the heart of what's there. This movie does really have heart, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, the audience I saw it with, um, it was it was, a, it was very mixed. There were a lot of... Um, a lot of black people in the audience, though. and Was it a press screening? It was or? a press screening. Um, there were a lot of black people in the audience. Um, a lot of, I'd say, maybe more black women than, than men. I, I couldn't really uh, tell truthfully. But there were, there was a significant number, and I I feel like they all really, really enjoyed it. And I and I feel like this is the type of movie that, like, my, my grandmother will probably love. And, and it, it, it's definitely a crowd pleaser, especially for people who might have lived through that time or who might have come on the cusp of it, people, you know, in their 50s or... or right, or, because it's a little bit of a square, old-fashioned movie, right? It doesn't right. do anything formally unexpected. It has a lot of kind of folksy humor that we haven't really talked about, but Oprah gets some There's really so, funny lines. That was actually what surprised me was how funny this movie is. Like, there obviously there are all these very dramatic moments, but there's a lot of humor. Oprah, um, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s crass role where he's telling all of these like really, really crass and 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 kind of dirty jokes. There's just I kind of liked that. I mean, granted, at times it felt a little out of place. There were moments where it's like that I don't feel like that really needed to be there, but there were a lot of moments that I was like, oh, this is. This is actually pretty funny, and and I think most of them worked. Yeah, I mean, the audience that I saw it with was, yeah, they were definitely whooping it up, and I felt like they were generous toward the movie in the sense that they could be sort of snickering at something that's unintentionally funny one minute, then laughing at something that's supposed to be funny the next minute, then crying at, you know, something moving the next minute, and the movie really kind of does that to you. It kind of drags you along and just says, like, put up with the crazy stuff because, you know, there's going to be something else there. Yeah. I think it's going to be actually a huge hit. I mean, I never like to predict that in these moments because, you know, who knows how people will respond to this movie but it's very crowd-pleasing. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's definitely, I mean, not, not that you would really compare the two, although Forrest Whitaker did have a hand in both of them, but, like, it's it's much more crowd-pleasing than Fruitvale Station um, and and kind of deals with race as well. And and I last I checked, I think, it's between Kick-Ass 2 and, and this. They're kind of, like, vying for Oh, my God, that's spot. like good versus evil. That has to win the weekend. Okay, I haven't seen Kick-Ass 2, so I, I shouldn't either. say anything, but I, I really hated the first one, and I have not heard good things about this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is no Fruitvale Station in terms of, you know, the complexity and seriousness with which it deals with, with race politics, but... Yeah. And, and Michael B. Jordan is probably un, as un, unlikely to be recognized for his role, which he deserves just as much as Forrest Whitaker, just because Whitaker's a bigger name and, and it's a more crowd-pleasing movie. I can't imagine that Forrest Whitaker won't either win the Oscar or be in very serious contention for it. Do you, do you think so? I don't know. Yes, because it's that kind of movie. It's a that's very true. Oscar-y movie. That's you know? true. I guess it depends what else happens this fall, but... Yeah, that's true. I mean, Oprah's already getting a lot of a lot of buzz for her performance, and I wonder if that would be a best actress or a best supporting. Best supporting, actress. I think, is what what we're hearing. Like her and Octavia Spencer from Fruitvale Station, I hear, are both like kind of getting the the buzz going for that. But if that's not the lead female role in this movie, what is? I guess that's always the question of what supporting well, I don't think exactly there, means. I don't think there is a lead yeah, female. Yeah, there's really not. I mean, her her storyline is is. Fairly significant in a very large movie, but I, I I don't think you would consider that a lead role in by any by any means. All right, well we'll see how it does at the box office. We'll see how it does at the Oscars. And thanks so much for coming in to spoil the butler with me. Hey, thanks, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. <laughs>